It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, August 8th, 2009. Sometimes this job takes a little bit out of you. Maybe it's the weather. It's a rainy day here in the Midwest. But the leaves are turning and they're pretty. <laughs> yeah. My odyssey known as the move to the Midwest. All right, thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. These are perilous times that we live in spiritually. And uh, some, of the, some of the most dangerous places to be uh, spiritually are uh, churches that claim to be Christian. Now, I understand that, that this is politically incorrect of me, and that sounds so divisive. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I understand that uh, to some of you that sounds divisive. And y- you know what? It is. Truth divides. God's word divides truth from error, light from darkness, false doctrine from sound doctrine. That's what this program is all about. Uh, there's lots of people in, out there in churches from Christian, <clears throat> well, at the pulpit would be the wrong way of saying it. I mean, you know, what pastors nowadays, except for the confessionals, are use pulpits? You know, uh, that, by the way, that's not, in, you know, if, if your pastor's preaching from a pulpit, that doesn't mean that uh, automatically, that means he's automatically orthodox. But it just seems like, um, let's see, there's so many new ways of doing it now. It's not a pulpit anymore. It's the stage. Uh, so uh, during the worship show, I mean experience, uh, it, a lot of pastors are out there, uh, well, they're preaching stuff that just ain't even found in the Bible. And so uh, we do the work here of doing discernment, being being good Bereans to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And it's not pretty for some um, people, just got to let you know. And listening to this program could be very disruptive to your life, could cause you to become dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor isn't preaching God's word and is off in me-centered la-la land. <clears throat> anyway, if you've listened to the show, you know what I mean by la-la land. All right, today's program, <clears throat> we've <laughs> we got a, uh, I don't know, how did this story make the news? Yeah, in the UK, there's a story, uh, the headline reads, God is not the creator, claims academic. The, really? <laughs> Whoever heard of an academic claiming that God isn't the creator? I mean, <gasps> what a scandal. We never thought that would happen. <clears throat> Sorry, that's just me being flippant there. We're going to read that story, and I'll show you how you tear this one apart. It's actually not hard. Um, then we've got this one, Idolatry Prevalent in American Culture. We're going to read that. Uh, we've got a story. It's it's a, it's not new as of this week, but I've been hanging on to it for a couple weeks. Uh, Egyptian Muslims claim building churches is a sin against God. 
Uh, call Rick Warren, somebody. Uh, in the, apparently the religion of peace uh, didn't get his uh, memo that we're supposed to clap hands and work together now on Rick Warren's global peace plan. And then I, I don't know what the Mormons are going to do. Uh, have you heard about this NASA mission? They're, they're going to bomb the moon. I, I'm not making this up. We're going to talk about that. And uh, what this what, what does this have to do with Mormonism? We'll t- <laughs> this is... Curtis, uh, this angle, by the way, is from the Defending Contending blog, and I thought it was actually a pretty good angle. And uh, and then we're going to take a look at Romans chapter eight. We're going to we're going to refire up our working through the uh, the Bible here. We're actually we've been working our way through the Book of Romans. And you think, well, what is it? What happened to Romans seven? Well, I read that as part of a sermon review a couple of days ago. If you want to hear Romans seven, you need to listen to that sermon review. And then today's uh, sermon review is a historical sermon review, and I got to tell you. <clears throat> rehearsing this sermon, I'm going to be reading it. It's not, it's not a good sermon. It's a bad sermon. And so I have to be the one to read it because I believe me, I scoured the internet looking for uh, somebody else to, that has posted an MP3 file of this historical sermon. This certain, this was suggested by uh, one of my uh, Facebook fans and I thought it was actually a good idea. And, um, uh, a Facebook friend saw. Sorry, it's a, the name of the sermon is uh, "Shall the Fundamentalists Win?" Defending liberal Protestantism in the 1920s. This was preached by Harry uh, Henry uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Shall the fundamentalists win? And so this is a sermon that's pro 1920s liberalism. And boy, could this have been preached yesterday? I mean, yeah, I mean today actually at, at, at four in the morning. You know, I'm telling you, this is. This is some relevant stuff here because uh, what we're battling in the emergent church is basically uh, liberalism 2.0. Rather than being modernist liberalism, it's postmodern liberalism. And they've come to pretty much all the same conclusions uh, that the modernist liberals have come to, except for they have a more clever way of getting there. It's via conversation. Anyway, so we're going to be reviewing that sermon, and it's going to be—I got to tell you—on the difficulty scale, this is going to be tough. And the reason why is because not only are you going to be, am I going to be preaching it, I'm going to be commenting on it at the same time. And I did not pre-record uh, me preaching this sermon, so <clears throat> I'm going to just—the liberals are going to hate this. But uh, when I'm delivering this uh, a sermon from uh, Harriet Emerson Fosdick. I will be using my most condescending academic tone possible. <clears throat> so, yeah, <laughs> they're going to consider that to be some kind of interpretive license that uh, is unwarranted and divisive. <laughs> yeah, I know. I get it. All right. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And so really, please make yourself comfortable. It's going to be a fantastic program. Uh, adult beverages, if you if that's your proclivity, we do not have a problem with that. And again, uh, use your discretion when it comes to the fuzzy bunny slippers, uh, just because, you know, the, the seasons are changing and, and your near neck of the woods might actually still be warm. While it, you know, which is not not a good way to uh, wear fuzzy bunny slippers. If you're if you're wearing it and it's warm outside, I I strongly advise against it. And so with that in mind, we're going to dive into the program proper, which means I have to queue up our vintage news music to uh, <clears throat> to move into our news segment here from the Telegraph in the UK. The headline reads: Get this. God is not the creator, claims academic. 
No, really? I mean, who ever heard of an academic claiming that God isn't the creator? Oh, the world is coming to an end. Well, no, the academics have turned on Christianity. Help us. <sighs> I don't know why this made the news. I mean, this is... Oh, academics have been making claims like this for centuries now, ever since the Enlightenment. <sighs> this is not newsworthy. However, though, since it is... Uh, printed in digital ink it you know i can't say it's not worth the ink that it's uh, the paper that it's printed on um and i don't want to say it's not worth the computer screen that it's printed on because you know my i've got a really nice laptop macintosh of course but uh, anyway so what do you do in a situation like that when the vernacular is changed i mean what would be the the replacement uh saying it's <clears throat> i can't even say that you know, I'm going to take this story and use it for toilet paper. I can't. It's Unless I want to print it out, why would I want to waste my printer paper on that? Anyway, this is by Richard uh, uh, Aline, who is a science correspondent for The Telegraph in the UK. <clears throat> the notion of God as the creator is wrong, claims a top academic who believes the Bible has been wrongly translated for thousands of years. Oh, man. <laughs> That's the argument. The Bible has been wrongly translated for thousands of years. <clears throat> I... All right, hopefully we all can uh, think our way out of a paper bag. But, I mean, this is a top academic who's making this claim. So, you know, we, uh, we, we might as well pack our bags and go home. Pack up your toys, folks. It's time for us to leave because for thousands of years, all those people who've been translating the Bible to mean that God created uh, the heavens and the earth, uh, they, 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 they've, been they've been translating it wrong. Now, by the way, this is kind of a dumb argument. And the reason why it's a dumb argument is because Judaism, um, which heavily relies upon the Masoretic text, um, I don't see any people out there who speak Hebrew uh, as a first language sitting there going, "Yep, yeah, he's right. Yeah, he, we've been <coughs> all along. We've been uh, we've been looking at this the wrong way." You know, <clears throat> let me read. Here we go. Here's this earth-shattering argument from a top, top. Academic. I mean, <clears throat> let's see. Professor Ellen Van Wald, female top academic, a respected Old Testament scholar and author. She's respected. By the way, I'm disrespecting her because the conclusion she's come to is just ridiculous. And anybody with half a sense can, can work their way through it. Okay. Ellen Van Wald, a respected Old Testament scholar and author claims the first sentence of Genesis. I mean, right off the bat, we're mistranslating. The first sentence in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, is not a true translation from the Hebrew. Really? Uh, <clears throat> by the way, I have a degree in uh, biblical languages. Um, <clears throat> I'm surprised that nobody caught this until now. She claims she has carried out fresh textual analysis. Fresh. <laughs> oh, man. It, what, 
what does the word fresh? That's the, the how does that modify this? I mean, fresh. She's carried out fresh textual analysis. <laughs> As opposed to to old and moldy, I mean, I, it's, I think of fresh. I think of fresh vegetables. I think of fresh bread. I think of fresh food, uh, as opposed to canned food. But she's carried out fresh textual analysis that suggests the writers of the great book never intended to suggest that God created the world. Fresh textual analysis has come to this conclusion. And in fact, the earth was already there when he created humans and animals. Professor Van Wald, 54, who will present a thesis on the subject at Radboud University in the Netherlands, where she studies, said she had reanalyzed the original Hebrew text and placed it in the context of the Bible as a whole and in the context of other creation stories from ancient Mesopotamia. So, you know, because here's the deal. Apparently, the Bible wasn't jiving with those other ancient creation stories from Mesopotamia, from the other pagan religions. And so she had to find a way to, you know, get everything all together in the right place. Because, listen, I mean, by the way, there's some really embarrassing um, creation stories from ancient Mesopotamia and uh, from the the fertile crescent area of the uh, ancient world. Um, in fact, I don't even think I can mention them here. Um, let me put it this way: uh, the Egyptian uh, religion uh, the, that was prevalent in Egypt, ancient Egypt, basically taught that uh, the universe came into existence because one of the gods was. Um, uh, pleasing himself sexually, and um, and the result of that particular event, uh, the um, the stuff that burst forth um, create, became the universe. Just saying. All right. Anyway, uh, if you didn't know that, I, I'm sorry if I completely wrecked Egyptian ancient Egyptian religions for you. Um, so she's trying to you know get this all to jive with the uh, ancient the other ancient religions, creation stories from Mesopotamia, because apparently she just can't believe that the Hebrews would be asserting something different than them. <clears throat> she said she eventually concluded the Hebrew verb bara, which is used in the first sentence of the book of Genesis, does not mean to create, but instead it means to spatially separate. Uh, what? Uh, the, <laughs> the first sentence of the Bible should now read, In the beginning, God separated the heaven and the earth. <clears throat> According to Judeo-Christian tradition, God created the earth out of nothing. Ex nihilo is what that's called. Professor Van Wald, who once worked with the Italian academic and novelist uh, uh, Umberto Eco, uh, said she uh, her new analysis showed that the beginning of the Bible was not the beginning of time, but the beginning of a, of a narration. And uh, she said it meant to say that God did create humans and animals, but not the earth itself. Uh, no, no, we don't want an all-powerful deity who can create ex nihilo. She writes in her thesis that the new translation fits with the ancient texts. That would be the ancient texts of other religions from Mesopotamia. <clears throat> Apparently they have greater weight because the Jews... 
you know, they did, the, the original author of the uh, Hebrew Bible wasn't trying to separate the, the God of the Bible from the other religions. So according to them, there used to be an enormous body of water in which monsters were living, and it, covered in dar- and it was covered in darkness, she said. But she said, technically, Barad does mean to create, but added, something was wrong with the verb. God was the subject God created, followed by two more objects. Why did God not create just one thing or animal, but always more? Because he's God? She concluded that God did not create. He separated the earth from the heaven and the land from the sea and sea monsters from from the birds and the swarming at the at the ground. So basically, see, the, before God got involved, all of this already existed. And it was all just one big jumble. And see, God was, oh, this is a mess. I'm going to have to come down here and clean things up and separate things spatially. See, there was already water, she said. There were sea monsters. God did not did create some things, but not the heavens and the earth. Uh, the usual uh, idea of creating out of nothing, creating ex nihilo, is a big misunderstanding. <laughs> God came later, came later, and he made the earth livable, separating the water from the land and brought light into darkness. And she hoped that her conclusions would spark a robust debate since her findings are not only new, but would also touch the hearts of many religious people. Do you feel your heart being touched by this new and fresh textual analysis? She said, maybe I'm even hurting myself. I consider myself to be religious and and the creator used to be very to be a very, very special uh, as a notion of trust. I want to keep that trust. Uh, The spokesman for the uh, rebound university said the the new interpretation is a complete shakeup of the story of creation as we know it. It's a shakeup. Van Wald added the traditional view of God. The creator is untenable now. Okay, okay, how, um, so there you go, pack your bags, go home, because she has done fresh, fresh textual analysis, the, the, uh, in the, and the Greek, uh, the Hebrew word bara there in uh, Genesis 1-1 cannot possibly mean that, that God created ex nihilo, it means he just separated things that were already there. How do we as Christians battle this lunacy? It's really not hard at all, and yeah, the reality is, is that, you don't have to know Hebrew to pull it off, but it helps. Okay, for instance, if you have a computerized Bible that has the Hebrew text in it, which I do happen, by the way, I have a, uh, several copies of the of uh, the Hebrew Bible uh, it, on my computer, and both in uh, Accordance as well as Lebronics, and you just do a simple word search for the Hebrew word bara. Okay, now the Hebrew word itself bara occurs, uh, you know. Uh, 54 times in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. And many of those times are really in the opening, we find them in the opening uh, passages of Genesis. So here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, she's saying that this should be understood as, in the beginning, God separated the heavens and the earth. Okay, not created, but separated. Now, let's, then what we need to do is we need to take a look and see how this verb is used in other places in the Bible. Now, it also occurs again. Okay, 
And uh, we find this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. By the way, nobody uh, nobody uses the word separated. So, uh, Genesis 1, 21, the, the word again. God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds in every way. So it says that God created the sea creatures. It doesn't say he separated them. It says he created them. Uh, also, uh, 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, this Genesis 127 is key. Here again, the word bara, the Hebrew verb bara is used, Okay. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The same word, bara, in Genesis 1.27 is also used in Genesis 1.1. Now, let's just go back to uh, <clears throat> uh, Professor uh, Van Wald's argument here. Let's see. Uh, it, it, she said it meant to say that God did create humans and animals, but not the earth itself. So she's basically saying... That um, that God didn't create ex nihilo because of her fresh uh, textual uh, analysis. Instead, it but but she admits that God created uh, m- humans. The thing is, is that the same Hebrew word cre- bara is used to say that God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. So three times the the Hebrew word bara occurs in Genesis one twenty seven, and it doesn't mean separated; it means created. So here's the deal: all over the Old Testament, this verb shows up, and it means created. Okay. Now, one other let me let me see if I could pull this up really quick here. Uh, another way we could take a look at this is: listen, if there's anybody who knows ancient biblical Hebrew, it would be uh, those ancient biblical Hebrews, (laughs) right? Well, it just so happens that those ancient biblical Hebrews, those ancient Jews, um, they were very familiar. They translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Now, we have a copy of it. It's called the Septuagint, okay? And the Septuagint itself, funny enough, uh, goes way, way, way back in time. Now, if anybody knew what ancient Hebrew meant, what Genesis 1-1 meant, the, how we were to understand the Hebrew word bara from, uh, the, uh, from the Masoretic text, it would be the, the guys who translated the uh, Hebrew Bible into ancient Greek. Okay, this, this, I mean, this is, a, this is a, a translation of the Bible that predates Jesus Christ, the Septuagint. Okay, let me let me read a little uh, Greek here. Anarche a poison hatheos. Okay, in the beginning, God poieo. That means and poieo is the is the is the word there. You ready? The Greek word means drum roll, please, to create. Yeah, poieo is the Greek verb there. Uh, the one that the Hebrew word bara they translated it into ancient Greek as poieo, and here's what it means: to make. Uh, to create, uh, to build, to create, to produce, to cause, to bring about, um, to, yeah, you see what I'm saying? Let's, uh, let's take a look at, uh, Jesus himself, because remember Jesus talks about the beginning. Uh, let me see if I can find this, uh, 
Uh, let's see. The words I am looking for. Oh, I got to get out of the Hebrew here. Hang on a second here. I'm, I was doing some Hebrew work before the program. Uh, the word I'm looking for is create, and I want to look for this in the New Testament. Okay, here you go. Ah, here we go. I'm doing some fresh textual analysis here, folks. This is cutting-edge radio that you're listening to. This is, at, In fact, this is so fresh. This is like today. This is right now. So here's the deal. According to my fresh textual analysis, I mean, looking at the Hebrew Masoretic text, looking at the Septuagint, looking at Jesus' reference to uh, uh, the beginning of creation that God created. Okay, by the way, here we go. Mark 13, 19. Let me see if this works. Hang on a second here. Need a little context, because uh, remember our three rules for biblical interpretation. Context, context, context. It says, okay, and and let no one who's in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may... Oh, cause it's talking about the end of the... Uh, uh, talking about uh, the destruction of the temple. Pray that it may not happen in the winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be again. Okay, okay, this is good. So, <clears throat> sorry, we're doing fresh. This, I'm t this is as fresh as it gets. I mean, this is even fresher than Van Wald's work here. Uh, fresh textual analysis here. When I, when I look at Jesus Christ, now keep in mind, uh, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. There is no greater authority on God's word that has ever lived in the history of mankind than Jesus Christ. There just isn't, okay? And here's the deal. He, his credentials are so impeccable uh, regarding his authority to speak on such things because he claimed to be God and proved it by raising himself from the dead three days after he was um, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now, check this out, okay? This is all fresh in the moment uh, textual analysis. Mark 13, verse 19. I read from the English Sanctified Version, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Jesus himself says that in the beginning God created. He's referring all the way back to Genesis 1. And let me see if I, let me check the, um, the Greek here, and to f make sure I've got this right, because what's he talking about? Uh, gar, uh, hemera, okay, okay, that one. So Jesus here is using the word to create, to build, and it's uh, at seedzo. So God created. So Jesus himself uses a different verb, but it has the same implication, and it's... Uh, um, Capital iota zeta omicron at Tzidzo, and it says to bring into existence, to create. Okay, so here's the deal. Doing fresh textual analysis right here on the fly. Jesus in Mark chapter 13, 19 makes it clear that he believes that uh, God created in the beginning. Created. And he uses the Greek word, Tzidzo. And that Greek word says it all. Says it all. It, it's to bring into existence, to create. So who are we going to believe? Okay. Now, what you basically heard is just, you know, you, you heard me kind of wandering through this a little bit. And, and here's the deal. I was doing this at fresh analysis on the radio. Why? Because it's not hard to disprove claims like Professor Van Wald's. 
okay, somehow making this claim that that the one verse cannot be trusted, and it's supposed to be understood not as created but as uh, separated, you have to look in God's Word and find where the same thing is referenced and take a close look at the words. The words are important because uh, we Christians um, believe in something called verbal plenary uh, inspiration. That is, is that the very words of Scripture are inspired by God. Okay? And so here Jesus Christ, in Mark chapter 13, referencing Genesis 1, uses a word that is unmistakably, uh, is unmistakable as to what it means, to create. It's not separate, as uh, Professor Van Wald said, it's to create. So now who are you going to believe? We did this fresh analysis. Are you going to believe Jesus or are you going to believe Professor Von Wald, who now says that the traditional view of God the Creator is untenable? All because she has this fanciful and fresh look at uh, the Hebrew word bara. Well, the problem is, is that it's not sub- it's not supported from the Septuagint. It's not supported from Jesus's own words, and uh, it's fanciful, but uh, doesn't hold up to scrutiny. So that's the idea. When you hear things like this. Get into your Bible and cross-reference it and look at the languages if you can, if you have language tools, and you'll see that these attacks over and again do not hold up. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or if you would like to uh, be my friend on Facebook, you can. My name, uh, we go facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there is pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, <sighs> sacked the choir, and put um, in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry, 
Are such elements as purpose, vision, I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian gentle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You have to say what the bit about our cheap weapons are. Uh, I I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay, okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough. Now. How do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. The Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. We are back. Warning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could put you at odds with your small group study leader, Bindi, who just opened up her Bible for the first time last week and is teaching you about God's Word. Just saying. 
All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. We are currently in the process of asking you, our listeners, to support us by joining the Pirate Christian Radio crew. We're looking for a 1,000 of our listeners to join the Pirate Christian Radio crew, and by signing up, you are uh, contributing $6.95. <laughs> Mere pittance. $6.95. What is $6.95? That's one extra value meal at Burger King or McDonald's. $6.95 a month to support the ongoing uh, Christ-centered discernment, uh, gospel preaching, teaching of uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, we, <clears throat> it's actually vital. It's a super importante. That's just not good Spanish, but it's mucho importante to the point where, uh, in, in, a, in a very real sense, our survival depends on it. So you can support us uh, by joining the Pirate Christian Radio crew. And the way you do that is visit our website, Pirate Christian Radio, not Pirate Christian, Fighting for the Faith. Sorry, I'm crossing my lines here, creeping decrepitude, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, click on one of our Join Our Crew buttons. You will be taken to a secure online page where you can sign up, and then $6.95 will automatically be deducted from your account every month. And uh, when we get to a 1,000 listeners who've done that, then the very minimum that we need to uh, operate and survive will uh, will be doing so there at uh, fighting for fighting for the faith, and we can continue our work. So it's vital that you do so. And if you would like to contribute above and beyond that, and there's people who have done that, and I cannot thank you enough, you can do so by clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and send it along to Post Office Box five zero eight, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. All right, so we've done our fresh perspective here. Okay, looking at uh, looking at our time here, I, I I went a lot longer on that God is not the creator thing. It just it just amazes me. First of all, that this is even in the Telegraph in the UK, and the reality is, listen, as far as apologists go, I am not the foremost apologist on the planet. And I mean, this was just completely debunked in, you know, just a few minutes with just a little bit of knowledge of the, well, I do have a degree in biblical languages, but with, with just that, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't teach biblical languages. I, I'm not a Hebrew professor. I am not a Greek professor and I don't play one on television and or the radio, but uh, anyway, sorry. All right. Okay. Let's see here. <clears throat> Okay, idolatry prevalent in America. All right, yeah, let's, I wanted to do this yesterday. This is from Audrey Barrick of the uh, Christian Post. The, uh, this, the the headline is, Idolatry Prevalent in American Culture, says Seattle Pastor. Okay, I think we're referring to Driscoll here. Uh, the Ten Commandments may seem like archaic laws that need a little updating, but they are as relevant today as they were several millennia ago, one pastor suggested. <laughs> it, it really is is there only one pastor out there suggesting this this is the christian post by the way uh, the, uh okay we could quote let's scrap the ten commandments says john weeks a writer for san bernardino county's the sun uh some of them are just plain silly based as they are upon ancient obsessions with farm animals and statutes that most of us have not moved that, that have moved well beyond um Okay, two things. <laughs> Number one, I've lived in Southern California, and the San Bernardino Sun. Uh, 
Oh, the San Bernardino Sun. <laughs> what? That is a penny any tiny, small readership, local, regional paper. I mean that that is not the equivalent of something like the Los Angeles Times or the Orange County Register. The San Bernardino Sun. That's like the Pasadena Star, or the or the San Clemente Times. I mean. Who cares what's said in the San Bernardino County Sun? <clears throat> anyway, sorry. <laughs> and number two, John Weeks kind of misses the point. Yes, it does say, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, or his cattle, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ox, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The the, the point there is not about the animals. It's about the coveting. That's yeah, You kind of missed the whole headline there in that particular commandment. Anyway, we... <laughs> The San Bernardino Sun. We're worried there. <laughs> this is like picking a fight with like a small person, like a child on a beach, and then getting all excited because you beat them up. Anyway, uh, all right, let's see here. So, quote, we don't work with our oxes or donkeys on the Sabbath. Or yeah, the whole point there is is honoring the Sabbath, and not whether or not you have donkeys, donkeys or oxes. Nor do we covet our neighbor's oxes or donkey. Yeah, but do you covet your neighbor's beamer out there in San Bernardino County, though? Um, do you covet your neighbor's working vehicle? Um, you know the Ford. Never mind. Anyway, and very few of us worship statues anymore. Yeah, but you've created idols of your in your own mind. That the whole point of idolatry is that you worship something uh, and you fear, love, and trust in it rather than God. Doesn't matter if you make an image to it or not. <sighs> anyway, though that may be true, many people today do not keep the Sabbath, and some have replaced statues with pop icons, food, or beauty. Mark Driscoll, preaching pastor at Mars Hill Church in Seattle, defines an idol as something or someone that occupies the place of God in a person's life. Um, this is badly written. Hang on. Audrey, who is the author of this uh, particular article, Mark Driscoll doesn't get to be the one to define what idolatry is. Just saying that it's God's word that gets to define it. So when we, let me let me rewrite this for you. Mark Driscoll, preaching pastor at Mars Hill Bible uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle, has discovered that the Bible defines an idol as something or someone that occupies the place of God in a person's life. See, that would be better. Uh, it's uh, preeminent, prominent at the center of your life, gives you identity, meaning, value, purpose, love, significance, security, he told ABC's Nightline. When the Bible uses the word idol, that's what it's getting at. You know, we might have to review that. The, if you worship alcohol, you become an alcoholic. If you worship food, you become a glutton. If you worship pleasure, you become a sex addict, Driscoll continued. All the modern vernacular is really not dealing with the root issue of idolatry. Something or someone is is preeminent other than God. The second commandment, that thou sh shalt not have, thou shalt have no other gods before me, may be the most relevant commandment of all. The Seattle pastor told ABC, which is doing a series on the Ten Commandments and how they apply to modern life. I probably will review this one on a, a future edition of Fighting for the Faith. The, the rest of the series bored me to tears. Anyway, idolatry, he said, shows itself in our culture and how we idolize celebrities, athletes, food, family, sex, money, relationships, and achievement, or, or rather what we call American culture. 
Human sacrifices during the Old Testament time may be equivalent to millions of people today sacrificing their health for their job, income, or a certain lifestyle, he noted. Worshipping statues may be equivalent to the millions who mourn the death of pop star Michael Jackson this past summer. When his face is on your T-shirt and when you listen to his music for hours, when you give large sums of money to him personally, when his death causes you to go into a steep depression and you have a collection of memorabilia... I think you've walked in from a. I think you've walked in from another culture. You would say that that's a very curious god that you've chosen. Driscoll said to ABC, "Idolatry," he warned, "ultimately destroys because the idols invariably disappoint." Well, no, actually, um, uh, the reason why idols destroy is because God punishes people for breaking that commandment. Wrath of God. Just again, maybe I'm being a stickler here. Anyway, uh, so the idols—they are—they aren't perfect. They aren't continually faithful. They don't endure forever. He said. <sighs> okay, offering Jesus as the answer to all of the idolatry. Driscoll said, "Jesus gives, while idols take. Jesus gives new life, while idols destroy life. Jesus redeems and heals, while idols break apart uh, people and relationships." Okay, ABC kicks off its tank. Okay, anyway, so there you have it. And uh, we might review that one because I tell you, I, you know, I TiVo'd uh, the the other installments on that Ten Commandments on on ABC's Nightline. <sighs> just wasn't compelling. Anyway, just wanted to point that out. All right, call somebody. Call Rick Warren. Uh, we've got a problem here. Um, those Muslims just still have not gotten the the the, the thing that they're supposed to stop persecuting Christians and work with Rick Warren on his global peace plan. They, they're just not getting it. Um, the headline is also from the Christian Post. Egyptian Muslim Council building of churches is a sin against God. Uh, McLaren. Somebody called Brian McLaren. I mean, he's uh, celebrating Ramadan with the, uh, you know, he's fasting during Ramadan with the Muslims out there. And uh, you know, while he he thinks that uh, Muslims worship the same God we do, that Muslims apparently are saved, he's a universalist. Um, and, and here they they don't seem to share his um, thoughts and feelings because apparently if you build a Christian church, that's a sin against um, Allah. Egyptian Muslim leaders are caught in a storm of controversy after a human rights group confronted them about a fatwa, that's an Islamic edict, that stated that the building of a church is a sin against God. Grand Mufti Ali Gama, uh, the highest official of the religious law in Egypt, and the justice minister have issued an investigation of the jurist who issued the fatwa, according to the Assyrian International News Agency. The controversy began when the president of the Egyptian Union Human Rights Organization, Dr. Naguib uh, Gabrael, uh, asked the fatwa council about a statement found in a textbook at Cairo University on inheritance and execution of wills. Students, both Muslims and Christians, were taught it is forbidden for a person to donate money for what would lead to sin, such as donating in his uh, will money towards building a church, a nightclub, a gambling casino, toward promoting the alcohol industry, or for building a barn for for rearing pigs, cats, or dogs. So, so in the Muslim world, building a church is is on the same level as building a nightclub, a gambling casino, promoting the alcohol industry, building a barn for pigs, cats, or dogs. 
<clears throat> they seem to have a high opinion about churches there, don't you think? Call Rick Warren. Rick Warren, you need to have a chat with these people. you got to get them to stop doing this stuff and work with you on your global peace plan. Gabrael asked the council what the Sharia Islamic law position on the statement found in the textbook is. He asked if it is forbidden for a Muslim to donate money to build a church or a monk's quarters, even if it's in the name of God and Christianity, which is recognized by the country's constitution. That would be Egypt's. The Egyptian constitution claims to respect religious freedom. He also noted that they, that wealthy Coptic Christian businessmen have donated towards the building of mosques. Ah. <laughs> Sorry. The council replied by affirming the law found in the textbook and then issuing a fatwa on it. Uh, including in, included in the fatwa is an expression on why it is a sin to build a church. According to the fatwa, Christians believe salvation is achieved through belief in Jesus as Lord, while Muslims don't. Muslims believe that uh, Isa, that's Jesus, is a slave of Allah and, and his messenger and that Allah is one. See, the, the Muslims get it. See, the Muslims get that there's a difference between what Christianity teaches and what Islam teaches. As a result of it, the Muslims are being consistent, right? While the Christians in America have gone all squishy and somehow are think that they can hold hands with the Muslims and wander down the primrose path together while... Um, fasting during ramadan together because uh, after all we all worship the same god or as the emergents say the uh, uh they celebrate the three abrahamic faiths that's judaism um, islam and christianity and uh, if you're phyllis tickle she also recognizes mormonism as a potential fourth uh, abrahamic faith see we all worship the same god but see the 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 muslims at least they said they're going oh, uh, no there's a difference <laughs> Christians, wake up. Seriously, wake up. Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God. The Muslims get it. And our job is to call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, to call them out of their false religion and call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. There is no name under heaven by which men must be saved other than Jesus Christ. We got to, uh, I'm serious. We stop working with them. Stop trying to make the world a better place with them. Uh, evangelize them. Call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. At least they're being consistent. <clears throat> but uh, again, you know, call, call, um, call Brian McLaren and, and Rick Warren and, and have them straighten these folks out. You know, <clears throat> <sighs> just unbelievable. Anyway, so, all right. Uh, okay. Did you have you all heard about this uh, this NASA moon mission? They're going to bomb the moon. I am not kidding. They're going to bomb the moon. Um, it, it sounds very destructive, right? Uh, it, it makes me question. Like, I hope that I hope that thing doesn't go off while it's you know you know the bomb doesn't blow up while they're launching it into orbit. Anyway, uh, the Scientific American ha the headline reads: NASA's mission to bomb the moon. NASA will tomorrow launch a spectacular mission to bomb the moon. Their LCROSS, uh, I'll just say LaCrosse mission, will blast off from Cape Canaveral, Florida, carrying a missile that will blast a hole in the lunar surface at twice the speed of a bullet. The missile, a Centaur rocket, will be steered by a shepherding spacecraft that will guide it towards its target crater, 
uh, close to the moon's south pole, scientists expect the blast to be so powerful that a huge plume of debris will be ejected. I wonder if we'll be able to see that from here. Any, I mean, this kind of—we've never bombed the moon before. Now, here's here's the the interesting question: What's the Mormon Church going to do about this? And you're going, huh? What does the Mormon Church have to do with NASA bombing the moon? Well, I'll tell you. I'm glad you asked, though. Um, the <laughs> the the thing. <laughs> Uh, well, um, I don't know if you know this, but um, Mormon prophets in the past have made the claim that the moon was inhabited by, you know, beings. Um, that being the case, I mean, there could be collateral, uh, basically um, un, un, unanticipated collateral damage. I mean, we, we're going to be murdering these people by bombing the moon. We read from uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, 10th prophet and president of the Mormon Church. He said the following, quote, We are not the only people that the Lord has created. We have brothers and sisters on other earths. They look like us because they, too, are the children of God and were created in his image, for they are also his offspring. Now, Brigham Young says this, who was the second prophet and president of the Mormon Church. He announced the following two interesting gems of wisdom. First of all, quote, mankind are here because they are the offspring of parents who were first brought here from another planet and power was given them to propagate their species. This is from Journal and Discourses, volume seven, page 285 from the 1859 edition. We also read this. Brigham Young says, we are called ignorant. So we are. But of what? Are not all ignorant? I rather think so. Who can tell us of the inhabitants of this little planet that shines of an evening called the moon? When we view its face, we may see what is termed the man in the moon and what some philosophers declare are the shadows of mountains. But these sayings are very vague and amount to nothing. And when you inquire about the inhabitants of that sphere, the moon, uh, you find that the most learned are, are as ignorant in regard to them as the most ignorant of their fellows. So it is with regard to the inhabitants of the sun. Do you think it is inhabited? I rather think it is. Do you think there is any life there? No question of it. It was not made in vain. It was made to give light to those who dwell upon it and to other planets. And so will uh, this earth when it's celestialized. So according to, this is from uh, Journal, of Dis Journal of Discourses, volume 13, page 271 from the 1870 edition. By the way, the Mormon Church is the one who published this. So Brigham Young <clears throat> claimed that the moon is inhabited and so is the sun by peoples. So NASA is going to bomb them. They're going to kill people. <clears throat> At least if you believe the Mormon prophets. William A. Lynn had this to say about Martin Harris, one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. Daniel Hendricks relates that he, as he and Martin Harris were riding to the village one evening, and he, re he remarked on the beauty of the, mu of the moon, Harris replied that if his compa companion could only see it as he had, he might well call it beautiful, explaining that he'd actually visited the moon and added that it was only the faithful who were permitted to visit celestial regions. 
That's William A. Lynn, The Story of the Mormons, page 35 from 1902. Oliver B. Huntington, who was a close associate of Joseph Smith and, and remained a faithful Mormon his whole life, said, Astronomers and philosophers have, from, uh, from time almost immemorial until very recently, asserted that the moon was uninhabited and that it had an atmosphere, etc. But recent discoveries through the means of powerful telescopes have given scientists a doubt or two upon the old theory. Nearly all the great discoveries of men in the last half century have, in one way or another, either directly or indirectly, contributed to prove Joseph Smith to be a prophet. As far back as 1837, and I know that he said the moon was inhabited by men and women, the same as this, this earth, and that they live to a greater age than we do, that they live generally near to the age of 1,000 years. He described the men as averaging nearly six feet in height and dressing quite uniformly in something near the Quaker style. In my patriarchal blessing given by the father of uh, Joseph the prophet in Kirtland in 1837, I was told that I should preach the gospel before I was 21 years of age, that I should preach the gospel to the inhabitants upon the islands of the sea and to the inhabitants of the moon. Even the planet that you now behold with your eyes. Yep, Mormons, uh, including Joseph Smith, uh, claim the moon was inhabited. Uh, so uh, this is from uh, Young Women's Journal, Volume Three, pages two sixty three and two sixty four from eighteen ninety two. And then Huntington also told of the uh, founding prophet, President Joseph Smith's teaching regarding the moon. We read, The inhabitants of the moon are more of a uniform size than the inhabitants of the earth. Being about six feet in height, they dress very much like the Quaker style and are quite uh, general in style or fashion of dress. They live to be very old, coming generally near a thousand years. This is the description of them as given by Joseph the seer, that would be Joseph Smith, and he could see whatever he asked the father in the name of Jesus to see. This is from the Journal of Oliver B. Huntington, Volume 3, page 166. So what are we going to do now? I mean, doesn't NASA understand that these they're going to be cutting short the lives of these poor inhabitants of the moon? Joseph Smith, a prophet of God, <clears throat> supposedly. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, from the fourth... Abrahamic religion, according to Phyllis Tickle, they, Joseph Smith taught that there were, and Jesus showed him that there were inhabitants of the moon. They dress like Quakers. They're six feet tall. And here, we're going to go and we're going to bomb the moon. How can we be so, so cold? I mean, you know, this might end up in some kind of intergalactic war. I mean, we might be living Star Wars here after this. I mean, since the inhabitants of the moon live longer than we do, I'm sure they're wiser and far more advanced than we are. I mean, we're we're going to be picking a fight with these guys. I mean, they're going to come down here and they're and they're going to let us have it. We've got to stop NASA. We've we've got to stop. They don't they understand that God told Joseph Smith there's inhabitants on the moon. <clears throat> I wish I was making that up. And so there you have it. And uh, that comes to us via <laughs> the fine work of the folks over at the Defending, Confet uh, Defending Contending uh, weblog. All right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at uh, Romans chapter 8, and then we're going to do our historical sermon review uh, from uh, from uh, uber-liberal uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick 
and his, his uh, sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? You definitely don't want to miss that, so stay tuned. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can ask to be my friend on, uh, follow me on Twitter, actually. You don't have to ask, just follow. Uh, and, and my name there is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax. Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, With a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Kitchen Source as one of our featured advertisers. Since 1996, Kitchen Source has been the leading online retailer of kitchen, bathroom, patio, and home accessories. Time and experience has allowed Kitchen Source to select some of the finest quality merchandise from top manufacturers around the globe. And they are pleased to continually add to their vast product selection in order to offer you the best home products. If you'd like to find out more about Kitchen Source, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash kitchen. That's right. PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash kitchen. 
And then when you land on that homepage, click on the friendly web banner that will take you to the Kitchen Source website. And remember that a portion of all of your purchases at Kitchen Source goes to support the work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash kitchen today. Back hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Straight ahead, a little Bible work today. Getting back on track as far as uh, working through the Book of Romans. We are up to Chapter Eight now. Thinking, where was Chapter Seven? When did you discuss that? I think it was two days ago. In the middle of the sermon re- review, we read the whole thing. Maybe it was Monday. Well, and. I forget the day now. Look, it was what was the sermon? I think it was a Theosis sermon. Is it when I read it? Yeah, it was the sermon. We, the sermon review on Theosis. That was the day we did it. So go back a couple of days, find that, and you'll find it in there. All right, we've been working our way through the book of Romans, and uh, we're up to Romans chapter eight. Just so you know, we're going to do Romans chapter eight, and then we're going to do our sermon review, historical sermon review today. Harry Emerson Fosdick's sermon entitled "Shall the Fundamentalists Win?" Yeah, those fundamentalists. <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> <clears throat> I am in one of those moods today. I just, you know, <sighs> anyway, <clears throat> sorry. Okay, so we're, we're up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to dive into Romans chapter 8. Here we go. Romans chapter 8. We read, good gospel here, by the way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, If you're outside of Christ Jesus, you are still under God's wrath. God's word could not be clearer. Universalism is not a biblical or Christian doctrine. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of human sinful flesh... And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, this verse four is really important here in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How is that so? How is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us? It says uh, we walk according to the spirit, not by faith. How is it? Well, because Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us as a gift. Therefore, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us because Christ fulfilled the law. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then were heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is, is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What are we waiting for? The resurrection, the return of Christ. <laughs> Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray, for as we uh for what for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we, knew, and we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, listen, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The only ones who love God are the ones who have been re regenerated through the preaching of the gospel, through the working of the Holy Spirit. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What, then, shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. Who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered <clears throat> so much for your best life now <clears throat> no 
in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In what things are we more than conquerors? Let me read that list again. Um, tribulations, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Those, in, in those things, we are more than conquerors. When you hear this, somebody quote Romans 8, 27, uh, 37 out of context, it drives me crazy. No, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Yay, we're more than conquerors. Well, that means we can have a BMW and a big fat, you know, you're just ridiculous. <clears throat> no, in all of these things, that's tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and danger. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor pr- things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Oh, that's good stuff. Just great stuff. All right, we're going to switch gears now, and we are going to get into our sermon review. That's right, the good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, today is a a historical ugly sermon. From a liberal. The name of the sermon is, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? It's a sermon in defense of liberal Protestantism, delivered in the 1920s, actually. Uh, I think this is a 1922 sermon. And this is going to be tricky, because I've got to deliver it and comment on it at the same time. It's like arguing with yourself. It's like having multiple personality disorder while doing a sermon review. And so I will be interpreting (laughs) uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick's tone. Yeah, let's kill that. Okay, so I'm (laughs) going to be interpreting. And so, you know, trying to... uh, Debating uh, with myself here on how to uh, how to deliver this. Now, one of the things I do when I end up reading a sermon and I'm the one delivering it, I've done a couple of these now Luther sermons. I, I put us into cathedral mode here using a, my soundboard here. So here's what it would sound like. Hello, there we go. Cathedral mode. Now I don't want to overdo this. The idea here is to create some kind of audio distinction between what I'm saying and and what what when I'm preaching and when I'm commenting. So that mentally there's a, a break. Um, <clears throat> that being the case, anyway, yeah, let me get out of that mode for a second here. So that when you hear the echoey voice, I'm trying to be Harry Emerson Fosdick. But I've decided I'm going to use a condescending kind of tone. Um, although, um, you know, I have no idea what his voice sounded like. So that's just my fundamentalist interpretation taking license so so without any further ado here is our sermon entitled shall the fundamentalists win (laughs) Ah, i'm so glad we have this one because this is a fun educational historical sermon so here we go 
This morning, we are, we are to think of the fundamentalist controversy which threatens to divide the American churches as though they already were not sufficiently split and riven. Got a comment on that. <laughs> right off the bat, we're on a bad start. He says, this morning, we're here to think of the fundamentalist controversy which threatens to divide the American churches. No, it wasn't the fundamentalists who were dividing the churches. It was the liberals. By abandoning God's word. <clears throat> we continue. <clears throat> A scene suggestive for the thought is depicted in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, where the Jewish leaders hail before them Peter and other of the apostles because they had been preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Moreover, the Jewish leaders uh, proposed to slay them when in opposition Gamaliel speaks Refrain from these men and let them alone, for if this council is the work of God uh, of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's God, ye will not be able to overthrow them, lest haply ye, ye be found fighting against God. Okay, got to point something out here. Um, bad interpretation. That's one of the things I noticed. There's two passages that heretics run to. This is one of them. And basically, the the idea here is is that you know remember the the early Christian church was being persecuted for proclaiming that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, that they were eyewitnesses, and they were proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Now, what happened is is that Peter was brought before the uh, the Jewish ruling council and was told not to preach this, and Gamaliel basically said, "Listen, leave these guys alone." Um, because if it's the work of men, it's going to be overthrown. But if it's the work of God, then uh, then we'll be fighting against God. Now, Fosdick throws this in here, basically claiming that he's doing the work of God, and if and uh, that the that these fundamentalists should leave them alone. And if if they're what they're doing is really from men, then it'll go away. But if it's really from God, then it'll it'll last. Well, the the problem is is that uh, that was Gamaliel's advice. And whether or not something succeeds or fails is not proof as to whether or not God's in the pudding. For instance, Islam, 8th century Christian heresy, by the way, much the same as Mormonism, um, it, it, this heresy has done rather well. There's a couple of billion people on the planet now that are followers of Islam. Does that prove it's from God? No. So keep in mind, though, uh, uh, Harry, that... Um, it was Peter who was being persecuted and the apostles who were being persecuted for proclaiming the actual physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You liberals deny it. So no, you are not in the same league as the apostle Peter because you are undermining the exact doctrines that the apostle Peter and the apostles were proclaiming. <clears throat> we continue. Already, all of us must have heard about the people who call themselves the fundamentalists. Their apparent intention is to drive out of the evangelical churches men and women of liberal opinions. I speak of them more freely because there are no two denominations more affected by them than the Baptists and the Presbyterian. We should not identify the fundamentalists with all conservatives. All fundamentalists are conservatives, but not all conservatives are fundamentalists. The best conservatives can often give lessons to the liberals in true liberality of spirit, but the fundamentalist program is essentially illiberal and intolerant. Uh, can I point out something here? <clears throat> Notice that he's being very intolerant of the fundamentalists. He's not being very liberal when it comes to the fundamentalists, 
is he what's with the double standard <clears throat> sorry um yeah all right we continue the fundamentalists see and they and they see truly that in this last generation there have been strange new movements in christian thought a great mass of new knowledge has come into man's possession new knowledge about the physical universe its origins its forces its laws new knowledge about human history and in particular about the ways in which the ancient peoples used to think in matters of religion and the methods by which they phrased and explained their spiritual experiences and new knowledge also about other religions and the strangely similar ways in which men's faiths and religious practices have developed everywhere notice i've got to point this out uh harry is um he's what's this new knowledge he's talking about the origins of humanity evolution he's basically saying okay evolution's true god didn't create us we evolved and and so what's happening is is that this the the new the new information, the new knowledge, they weren't challenging it. They were basically saying it's true. And so now they're trying to figure out how to reconcile Christianity in light of these new things, uh, evolution being at the, at the foremost front of it. And so basically already you see twinges of universalism in this sermon where he says about other religions and the strangely similar ways in which men's faith and religious practices have developed everywhere. We see underpinnings of liberalism, uh, of universalism, as well as uh, this idea that uh, evolution is true. So what's happened is, is that rather than doing what they were supposed to do to battle evolution tooth and nail and prove it to be basically the fraud that it is these guys capitulated to it and so that's this is where liberalism comes from they are basically bowing to the the new modernist information as if it's true rather than challenging it and saying no it's not we didn't evolve from apes that's not what the scripture said so what happened is is they they lost their uh, they their will to fight. They lost their confidence in God's word and what it says because of this, quote, new knowledge that was coming to light. <clears throat> we continue. Now, there are multitudes of reverent Christians who have been unable to keep this new knowledge in one compartment of their minds and the Christian faith in another. They have been sure that all truth comes from one God and, and his revelation, not therefore from irreverence or caprice or destructive zeal, but for the sake of intellectual and spiritual integrity, that they might really love the Lord their God, not only with all their heart and soul and strength, but also with their mind, all of their mind. They have been trying to see this new knowledge in terms of the Christian faith and to see the Christian faith in terms of this new knowledge. You see what's going on here? He wants to remain a Christian and deny the Bible. I, 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 the evolution has to be true. We evolved from apes. So what we're going to do is we're going to find a way to come to terms with this new knowledge, these new ideas that are coming to light from the modern era, and somehow reconcile the Christian faith to it. He's completely lost lost any confidence in the scriptures. He's bending the knee to these modernist challenges. 
Unbelievable. And so the, the, he's claiming to have spiritual integrity based on the idea that all truth is God's truth. And so what we have to, we can't compartmentalize. We've got, we know that evolution is true and we also know, well, the Bible's true, but how do you reconcile the two? Well, obviously the Bible is metaphor. It's mythology. It's whatever. That's how this happened. We continue. Doubtless, they have made many mistakes. Doubtless, there have been among them reckless ra radicals, gifted with intellectual ingenuity, but lacking spiritual death. Yet, the, the enterprise itself seems to them indispensable to the Christian church. The new knowledge and the old faith cannot be left antagonistic or even disparate, as though a man on Saturday could use one set of regulative ideas for his life and on Sunday could change gear to another altogether. We must be able to think our modern life clear through in Christian terms, and to do that we must also be able to think our Christian faith clear through in modern terms." Yep, he uh, completely lost his nerve. So rather than fighting these things and saying, nope, evolution's not true and these new modern ideas are not true, he basically embraced these new modern ideas as true and basically had to adapt or modify Christianity as a result. He wants his uh, modern ideas and his uh, Christianity too, but the two are not compatible. And... Here we are in 2009, and it's, I mean, sorry, but uh, these modern ideas are far from proved. <sighs> anyway, yeah, we continue. There is nothing new about the situation. It has happened again and again in history. As, for example, when the stationary Earth suddenly began to move and the universe that had been centered in this planet was centered in the sun around which the planets whirled. Whenever such a situation has arisen, there has been only one way out. The new knowledge in the old faith had to be blended in, in a new combination. Now the people in this generation who are trying to do this are the liberals, and the fundamentalists are out on a campaign to shut against them the doors of the Christian fellowship. Shall they be allowed to succeed? That was an interesting statement. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. Does the Bible teach that the world is flat and that the earth is the center of the solar system? Answer, no. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, it, just, it, says, it talks about God standing enthroned above the circle of the earth. It's true. Read it. Look it up. Okay? So basically, um, this, is, this, is a, this isn't even a valid argument because the Bible does not teach that the, 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 the earth is stationary or that it's the center of the universe or that the sun revolves around the earth. The Bible teaches no such thing. So there wasn't a conflict. There were people who made it a conflict by basically creating a dogma out of something that wasn't in the scriptures. And so now what's he talking about? That the, this, is, this is not a new thing and that there's always been a blending of new knowledge in the Christian faith. And that's what he says he's doing. He's blending this new knowledge with the Christian faith. Blended in a new combination. Yeah, he says the new knowledge and the old faith have to be blended in a new combination, he said. No, they don't. Light and darkness have nothing in common with each other. And the, quote, new knowledge, it, no, 
it it contradicts the scripture and it's it's not even knowledge it's not even true we continue oh by the way i have to point this out now he's talking about how the fundamentalists are trying to shut the the uh, shut the liberals out of christian fellowship well they've abandoned the faith they've gone heretical they're not preaching the truth regarding god and the bible you cannot create a hybrid modernist and christian faith the two don't go together We continue. It is interesting to note what the fundamentalists are driving in their stakes to mark out the deadline of doctrine around the church across which one is is to pass except on terms of agreement. They insist that we must all believe in the historicity of certain special miracles. Apparently he doesn't believe those. Uh, preeminently the virgin birth of our Lord, that we must believe in a special theory of inspiration or that the original documents of Scripture, uh, which, of course, we're, we no longer possess, were inherently dictated to men a good deal as a man might dictate to a stenographer, that we must believe in a special theory of the atonement, that the blood of our Lord shed in a substitutionary death placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner, and that we must believe in the second coming of our Lord upon the clouds of heaven to set up a millennium here as the only way in which God can bring history to a worthy denouement. Such are some of the stakes which are being driven to mark a deadline of doctrine around the church. I think he uh, he outlines this rather well. And by the way, this could have been, I mean, this sounds exactly like the emergence. Rob Bell questioning the virgin birth. Um, the uh, emergence attacking the penal substitutionary atonement, uh, attacking the uh, verbal plenary uh, inspiration of scripture, um, and uh, the emergence denying the uh, the physical return of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead as the scriptures teach. So, and he, notice he's speaking derogatorily of the fundamentalists who insist that that's, that's sound Christian doctrine. And that if you're a Christian, you must believe these things. We continue. If a man is a, general, a genuine liberal, his primary protest is not against holding these opinions, although he may well protest against their being considered the fundamentals of Christianity. Uh, this is a free country, and anybody has a right to hold these opinions or uh, any others if he, is, if he is sincerely convinced of them. The question is, has anybody a right to, uh, to deny the Christian name to those who differ with them on such points and to shut against them the door? of the Christian fellowship. The fundamentalists say that this must be done in this country and on the foreign field they are trying to do it. They have actually endeavored to put on the statute books of a whole state binding laws against teaching modern biology. If they have their way within the church, they would set up in Protestantism a doctrinal tribunal more rigid than the Pope's. Ironic that he's uh, complaining about them being um, having a doctrinal tribunal, and yet uh, he's preaching against them. See, the thing is, is that they understand that when you lose the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, Christ's virgin birth, when you lose the substitutionary atonement, you don't have Christianity anymore. You don't have it. 
And if you don't, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, you're basically saying scripture is lying and Jesus is not God. Because that's the thing that goes. The deity of Christ goes if you deny the virgin birth. If you deny the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, uh, basically the, the, the Scriptures can err. That You can't know anything for sure in the Scriptures. If the Scriptures are wrong um, in regards to certain things, then they're, how do you know they're right regarding your uh, the proclamation that your sins are forgiven in Christ? And to deny the substitutionary atonement, oh boy, it's interesting that that's, that continues to be the grind that the liberals, even the 2.0 liberals, the emergence, are, are absolutely obsessed at getting rid of. This idea that Christ died in our place, that he was pierced for our transgressions. You don't have, a the, you don't have an atonement in liberalism. What's the point of Christianity? You can't declare the forgiveness of sins, nor can you declare repentance. Liberalism guts Christianity of its essential doctrines, and it ceases to be Christianity. <sighs> anyway, we continue. In such an hour, delicate and dangerous, when feelings are bound to run high, I plead this morning the cause of magnanimity and liberality and tolerance of spirit, I would, if I could, reach their ears, say to the fundamentalists about the liberals what Gamaliel said to the Jews, refrain from these men and let them alone, for if this council is of the work of men, it will be overthrown, but it is of the work of, of God, ye will not be able to overthrow them, lest uh, they be ye be fine fighting against God. Well, here, this is, again, this is one of the passages that uh, liberals always go to and heretics always go to. Uh, we know that what you're saying is not of God because it contradicts God's clear word. And we are told in other clear passages of Scripture to preach what's in accord with sound doctrine and rebuke those who teach otherwise. The fundamentalists had it right. And no, uh, we can say with certainty that liberalism is not of God because it denies what Christ has done for us and turns God's word into a bunch of mythology. Sorry. No, we continue. That we may be entirely candid and concrete and may not lose ourselves in any fog of generalities, let us this morning take two or three of these fundamentalist ideas and see with reference to them what the situation is in the Christian churches. Too often we preachers have failed to talk frankly enough about the differences of opinion which exist among evangelical Christians, although everybody knows that they are... Uh, that they are there. Let us face this morning some of the differences of opinion from which somehow we must deal. We may well begin with the vexed and mooted question of the virgin birth of our Lord. I know people in the Christian churches, ministers, missionaries, laymen, devoted lovers of the Lord and servants of the gospel, who alike as they are in their personal devotion to the Master, hold quite different points, uh, different points of view about a matter like the virgin birth. Here, for example, is one point of view that the virgin birth is to be accepted as historical fact. It actually happened. There was no other way for a personality like the Master to come into this world except by a special biological miracle. That is one point of view. And many are the gracious and beautiful souls who hold it. 
But side by side with them in the evangelical churches is a group of equally loyal and reverent people who would say that the virgin birth is not to be accepted as a historic fact. So far from thinking that they have given up anything vital in the New Testament's attitude toward Jesus, these Christians remember that the two men who contributed most to the church's thought of the divine meaning of the Christ were Paul and John, who never even distantly allude to the virgin birth. That's your argument? That the apostle Paul and John never allude to the virgin birth. So therefore, uh, that means that they didn't believe it. And by the way, that's called an argument from silence. And no, those who say who want to deny it are denying the deity of Christ himself. They're denying God's word. They haven't repented and their minds are not being transformed by God's word. They're rebelling against it. And this idea that Paul and John never mention it, therefore it, it, you don't have to believe it. no. Paul and John both affirmed it, even if they never mentioned it, because the scriptures teach it. Not only in the New Testament, but in the Old as well. You see, the problem there is is that they've adopted the modernist thinking, the new knowledge that miracles are not possible. And that's why they get rid of it, because they believe the modern ideas are, are more true than what the Bible says. Nope. And uh, the argument from silence. The thing is, is that the scriptures clearly teach it in Isaiah, as well as the synoptic gospels. That virgin was the, the virgin was with child. Mary did not have sex with anybody to conceive Jesus. The Holy Spirit came upon her and she conceived Christ within her womb through the miraculous workings of the Holy Spirit. Jesus does not have an earthly father, period. And to deny that is to deny his deity and to deny what God's word clearly teaches. That is, somebody who denies the virgin birth is not one who affirms and proclaims Christian doctrine, but is one who denies and attacks it from within, and they need to be cast out. We continue. Here in the Christian churches are those two groups of people, and the question which the fundamentalist raises is this. Shall one of them throw the other out? Yes, they should. They should throw them out. They're heretics. They need to be cast out. Has intolerance any contribution to make in this situation? Yes, intolerance does. In fact, the Bible commands us to be intolerant. <clears throat> Let me, um, just doing a little biblical work here. Do We're going to look for the word rebuke. Okay, <clears throat> here we go. Are you guys ready for this? I don't, I, you liberals are not going to like it. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may uh, stand in fear. N- nothing about tolerance there. Um, if 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, uh, uh, an overseer must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's right. Rebuke 
those who contradict it. Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Um, or <laughs> let me let me read more of Titus chapter one. Hang on a second. I'm going to add a little context here to this in my computerized Bible. All right. So an overseer, he must be he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's Titus one nine verse ten says. For there are many who are insubordinate. Does it sound like a liberal? Somebody who is insubordinate. They're being insubordinate to God's word. They are empty talkers and they are deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans who was a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, so therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So, um, Harry, uh, listen, um, we got a problem here, and that is, is that you make the claim, uh, you ask the question, has intolerance any contribution to make to this situation? The answer is yes. Christians are to be perniciously intolerant when it comes to false doctrine and those who would deny the Christian faith and sound biblical doctrine. We are to be intolerant, not tolerant. Tolerance is not a virtue if you're tolerating heresy, if you're tolerating lies. <clears throat> Has tolerance any contribution to make uh, to this situation? Will it persuade anybody of anything? Is not the Christian church large enough to hold within her hospitable fellowship uh, people who differ on points like this and agree to differ until the fuller truth be manifested? There's no fuller truth to be manifested regarding the virgin birth. It says it's that's what happened, that's what happened. There is no fuller truth to come. Uh, that that particular doctrine has been revealed in full. Real simple. Mer Mary was a virgin. The Holy Spirit conceived in her Jesus Christ. She had no earthly. Uh, he had no earthly father, and there was no guy that uh, can say that he impregnated uh, Mary. There is no fuller uh, truth to come about as a result of it. That's the whole story. <sighs> Is not the Christian church large enough to hold within her hospitable fellowship people who differ on points like this and agree to differ until the fuller truth be manifested? The fundamentalists say not. They say the liberals must go. They're right. Well, if the fundamentalists should succeed, then out of the Christian church would go some of the best Christian life and consecration of this generation. Multitudes of men and women devout and reverent Christians who need the church and whom the church needs. Uh, we don't need a single heretic. Don't need him at all. In fact, the reality is, you know, I'm I'm an orthodox guy, and the church doesn't need me either. God doesn't need me. But uh, more importantly, there the church has no need for heretics whatsoever. They are preaching doctrines of the devil, and they need to go, plain and simple. Consider another matter on which there is sincere difference of opinion between evangelical Christians, the inspiration of the Bible. One point of view is that the original documents of Scripture were inerrantly dictated, actually it's inspired, not dictated, uh, by, the, by God to men. 
Whether we deal with the story of creation or the list of dukes of Edom or the narratives of Solomon's reign or the Sermon on the Mount or the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, they all came in the same way. They all came as no other book ever came. They were inerrantly dictated. No, they were inspired. Uh, everything there, scientific opinions, medical theories, historical judgments, as well as spiritual insight is infallible. That is one idea of the Bible's inspiration. The correct one, by the way. <clears throat> but side by side with those who hold it, lovers of the book as much as they are multitudes of people who never think about the Bible so. Indeed, that static and mechanical theory of inspiration seems to them a positive peril to the spiritual life. No, they're not lovers of the book if they want to deny what it says. And I base this on the fact that Jesus Christ... His view of Scripture is that, yeah, that was all true. Jesus Christ said that Jonah was in the body of a fish for three days, that Adam and Eve were historical people. Moses is the author of uh, the, the Pentateuch. Those were all his opinions, and he was the greatest authority who ever walked the earth on the Bible, proving his credentials by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified. So don't sit there and tell me in pious terms that all these people who deny God's word are lovers of the book. They're not. They're haters of it. And I don't care what kind of words you use to piously cover up your unbelief and your skepticism. You're lying. <clears throat> Here in the Christian church today are these two groups, and the question which the fundamentalists have raised is this. Shall one of them drive the other out? Yes. Do we think the cause of Jesus Christ will be furthered by that? Actually, yes, because you're undermining the cause of Christ by preaching a false gospel. If he should walk through the ranks of his congregation this morning, can we imagine him claiming as his own those who hold one idea of inspiration and sending from him into the outer darkness those who hold another? You know, inspiration is kind of just the fruit. The root of the problem is, is that you want to be an unbeliever and still be a Christian. You don't have faith in Christ. You don't have trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins because you've gutted his deity, you've undermined his word, and you challenge his atonement on the cross for your sins. You don't have Christ. So the issue is not inspiration. Inspiration is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. That leads to the bigger core problem, unbelief, unrepentance. We continue. You cannot fit the Lord Christ into, the, into that fundamentalist mold. What does that mean? The fundamentalists are merely just exegeting what God's word teaches and saying this is true. We're not forcing Jesus into a mold. That's the way he's revealed himself. The church would be would better judge his judgment, for in the Middle West, the fundamentalists have had their way in some communities, and a Christian minister tells us the consequences. He says that the educated people are looking for their religion outside the churches. That, that, that's true. Consider another matter upon which there is a serious and sincere difference of opinion between evangelical Christians. The second coming of our Lord. The second coming was the, was the early Christian phrasing of hope. No one in the ancient world had ever thought, as we do, of, de, 
of development, progress, gradual change as God's way of working out his will in human life and institutions. They thought of human history as a series of ages succeeding one another with abrupt suddenness. The Greco-Roman world gave the names of metals to the ages, gold, silver, bronze, or iron. The Hebrews had their ages too. The original paradise in which man began, the cursed world in which man now lives, the blessed messianic kingdom someday suddenly to appear on the clouds of heaven. It was the Hebrew way of expressing hope for the victory of God and righteousness. When the Christians came, they took over that phrasing of expectancy, and the New Testament is aglow with it. The preaching of the apostles thrills with the glad announcement, Christ is coming. In the evangelical churches today, there are differing views of this matter. One view is that Christ is literally coming externally on the clouds of heaven to set up his kingdom here. I never heard that teaching in my youth at all. It has always had a new resurrection when desperate circumstances came and man's only hope seemed to lie in divine intervention. It's not strange, then, that during these chaotic, catastrophic years, there has been a fresh rebirth of this old phrasing of expectancy. Christ is coming, seems to many uh, Christians the central message of the gospel. In the strength of it, some of them are doing great service for the world, but Unhappily, many overemphasize it, and they outdo anything the ancient Hebrews or the ancient Christians ever did. They still, they sit still and do nothing, and expect the world to grow worse and worse until he comes. Side by side with these, to whom the second coming is a literal expectation, another group exists in the evangelical churches. They, too, say Christ is coming. They say it with all their hearts, but they are not thinking of an external arrival on the clouds. They have assimilated as part of the divine revelation the exhilarating insight which these recent generations have given to us. That development is God's way of working out his will. And these Christians, when they say Christ is coming, mean that slowly it may be, but surely will. His will and principles will be worked out and by God's grace in human life and institutions until he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. These two groups exist in the Christian churches, and the question raised by the fundamentalists, shall one of them drive the other out? Will that get us anywhere? <clears throat> so, the, in the liberal way of thinking, Christ isn't literally coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead, which is what the creed says and which is what, what the word so clearly teaches. A God without wrath, saving men without sin. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what we're talking about here. These two groups exist in the Christian churches, and the question raised by the fundamentalist is, shall one of them drive the other out? Will that get us anywhere? Multitudes of young men and women at this season of the year are graduating from our schools of learning. Thousands of them, Christians who may make us older ones ashamed by the sincerity of their devotion to God's will on earth. They are not thinking in ancient terms that leave ideas of progress out. They cannot think in those terms. There should be no greater tragedy than that the fundamentalists should shut the door of the Christian fellowship against them. They're heretics. 
they need to be shut out of the Christian church so they don't infect other people with that. They should be rebuked and told to repent of their false teaching. And no, they don't have a sincere devotion to God because they deny the very Lord who bought them. I do not believe for one moment that the fundamentalists are going to succeed. Yeah, well, they haven't. Nobody's intolerance can contribute anything to the solution of the situation which we have described. <clears throat> intolerance is a Christian virtue, by the way. We just went through the passages that show it. If then the fundamentalists have no solution of the problem, where may we expect to find it? In two concluding comments, let us consider our reply to that inquiry. The first element is that it is that is necessary is a spirit of tolerance and Christian liberty. Today we'd call it conversation. Uh, no, there, there, it, there is no tolerance for this. There shouldn't be any. None. Zero. And no, Christians do not have the liberty to deny fundamental doctrines and still maintain the, the, the identity as Christians. Sorry, the Bible doesn't allow that. When will the world learn that intolerance solves no problems? Well, it actually does solve the problem of heresy by kicking it out. <clears throat> this is not a lesson which fundamentalists alone need to learn. The liberals also need to learn it. Well, you're speaking intolerantly of um, fundamentalists. <clears throat> Speaking as I do from the viewpoint of liberal opinions, let me say that if some young, fresh mind here this morning is holding new news, new ideas, has fought his way through, it may be by intellectual and spiritual struggle, no novel positions, and is tempted to be intolerant about old opinions, offensively to, to condescend to those who hold them and to be harsh in judgment on them. He may well remember that people who held those opinions have given the world some of the noblest character and the most memorable service that it has ever been blessed with and that we of the younger generation will prove our case best not by controversial intolerance but by producing with our new opinions something of the depth and strength nobility and beauty of the character that in other times were associated with our thoughts it was a wise liberal the most adventurous man of his day paul the apostle paul was not a liberal paul the apostle who said knowledge puffeth up but love buildeth up it was also the apostle paul who said to rebuke those who teach a false doctrine and to rebuke them sharply Nevertheless, it is true that just now the fundamentalists are giving us one of the worst exhibitions of bitter intolerance that the churches of this country have ever seen. As one watches them and listens to them, he remembers the remark of General Armstrong of Hampton Institute, Cantankerous is the, is worse, cantankerousness is worse than heterodoxy. And <laughs> if that's true, I am, ay, 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 I'm in trouble. <clears throat> we continue. There are many opinions in the field of modern controversy concerning which I am not sure whether they are right or wrong. But there is one thing I am sure of. Courtesy and kindness and tolerance and humility and fairness are right. Opinions may be mistaken. Love never is. Where's the love for the fundamentalists? I'm not hearing it in this sermon. As I plead thus for an intellectually hospitable, tolerant, liberty-loving church, 
I am, of course, thinking primarily about the new generation. We have boys and girls growing up in our homes and schools, and because we love them, we may well wonder about the church which we will be waiting to receive them. Now, the worst kind of church that can possibly be offered to the allegiance of the new generation is an intolerant church. Ministers often bewail the fact that young people turn from religion to science for the regulative ideas of their lives, but this is easily explicable. Science treats a young man's mind as though it were really important, a scientist says to a young man. Here is the universe challenging our investigation. Here are truths which we, can, which we have seen so far. Come study with us. See what we already have seen and then look further to see more. For science is an intellectual adventure for the truth. Can you imagine any man who is worthwhile turning from that call to the church uh, if the church seems to say to him, Come, and we will feed you opinions from a spoon. No thinking is allowed here except that such as brings you a certain specified predetermined conclusion. These prescribed opinions we will give you in advance of your thinking. Now think, but only so as to reach these results. Something to keep in mind. Christian doctrine calls us to confess, along with all Christians of all ages, the truths of Scripture. God doesn't change. These truths are eternal truths. We're not come, called to come and think and progress beyond them in, in such a way that we deny them. That's not Christian progress. That's called heresy. And we act, the Bible actually has a category for that, heresy. That's what the, the biblical category is is oh man <sighs> we continue my friends nothing in all the world is so much more worth thinking as uh, of as god christ the bible sin and salvation the divine purposes for humankind life everlasting but you cannot challenge the dedicated thinking of this generation to these sublime themes upon any such terms as are laid down by an intolerant church. The second element which is needed if we are to reach a happy solution of this problem is a clear insight into the main issue of modern Christianity and a sense of penitent shame that the Christian church should be quarreling over little matters when, this, when the world is dying of great needs. If during the war when the nations were wrestling upon the very brink of hell and at, the, at times all seemed lost, you chanced to hear two men in an altercation about some minor matter of sectarian denominationalism, could you restrain your indignation? You said, what can you do with folks like this who, in the face of colossal issues, play with the tiddlywinks and, and uh, picadillos of religion? So now, when from terrific questions of this generation one is called away by the noise of this fundamentalist controversy, he thinks it almost unforgivable that men should tithe mint and anise and cumin and quarrel over them when the world is perishing for lack of weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. I want to point something out here. <clears throat> the only, the only passage of scripture he's quoted is one out of context from Acts chapter 5. That's it. He's not actually showing us from the Scripture that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. He's not showing us from Scripture uh, regarding the substitutionary atonement. He's not, none of that. This is all just the philosophical sophistry. 
nowhere in scripture is he showing us the importance of tolerance and liberty when it comes to uh, variance of opinions on on doctrine. This is all just his opinions. His opinions apparently rule. <clears throat> we continue. We're almost done. Thank God. The present world situation smells to heaven, and now in the presence of colossal problems which must be solved in Christ's name, and for Christ's sake, the fundamentalists propose to drive out from the Christian churches all the consecrated souls who do not agree with their theory of inspiration. What immeasurable folly. Actually, that's kind of missing the whole point. They're trying to drive out those in in the that are in the Christian church who are driving out faith and fear, love, and trust in the one true God and certainty of salvation and forgiveness of sins. The tip of the iceberg is inspiration. That's just, that's just the smoke that shows that there's a fire burning. <clears throat> we continue. Well, they are not going to do it, those wascally fundamentalists. I put that part in. Certainly not in this vicinity. I do not even know in this congregation whether anybody has ever been tempted to be a fundamentalist. Notice the intolerance towards being a fundamentalist. Just, you know, don't you find it interesting? He's sitting here preaching about the virtues of tolerance and liberal opinions. And yet um, he's trying to drive out fundamentalists and he's highly intolerant of their views. Never in this church have I caught one accent of intolerance. Except for him preaching, by the way. <clears throat> God keeps us always so in ever-increasing areas of the Christian fellowship, intellectually hospitable, open-minded, liberty-loving, fair, tolerant, not with the tolerance of indifference, as though we did not care about the faith, but because always our major emphasis is upon the weightier matters of the law. And getting rid of those fundamentalist bigots. <laughs> So there's um, June 10th, 1922, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, shall the fundamentalists win? I think that's a, a fine, fine uh, lesson in intolerance, don't you? All right, we are rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. What's the big deal? The big deal is this. It's only through... The, the these these fundamentals, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, the penal substitutionary atonement or vicarious atonement for your sins, that that the the Christian faith can remain true to what God has revealed, because we're called by Jesus Christ our, Himself to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and it's not about getting off in la-la land and, sol and solving the world's problems. It's about proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. For Jesus Christ is someday going to return physically in glory. The whole world will see it to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes, it's not going to be good news for everybody. In fact, those who are not in Christ remain under the wrath of God and they will face God's eternal punishment for their sins. And we as Christians cannot stand idly by while the world is going to hell. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to love and serve our neighbor by proclaiming the forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus' name by his vicarious and penal substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. 
And today, as just the same as in the nineteen in the nineteen twenties, there are forces within the Christian church who are teaching doctrines of the devil, who are denying the very fundamental doctrines that are laid out in Scripture, who are preaching tolerance towards things that Christians are to be intolerant of. We cannot embrace homosexuals who are unrepentant. We have to call them to the repent to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, just like all of us have had to repent of our sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for the things at which we have broken God's law and have offended him by our wickedness and wretchedness. Liberalism is not Christianity. Tolerance is not a virtue. Intolerance is what we're called to we're called Christians are called to be intolerant. Intolerant of our own sin, intolerant of false doctrine, and to stand our ground and proclaim salvation in one Lord, Jesus Christ. And there is salvation in no one else. And the good news is that Christ did die for your sins. Therefore, repent of your wickedness and trust in this good news. All right. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. And right now we're in the middle of uh, appealing to you, our listeners. Uh, we need a 1,000 of our listeners to join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew and uh, sign up to have $6.95. That's, that, that's it, just a mere $6.95 a month deducted from your account so that we can pay our bills and continue the ongoing mission of proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins here at Fighting for the Faith and to provide uh, Christ-centered, cross-focused, preaching, teaching, and doctrinally-focused programming here at Pirate Christian Radio. And it's absolutely vital that you, that's right, you, my listener, d- uh, join our crew. You can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, click on one of our yellow Join Our Crew buttons and sign up for our uh, Pirate Christian Radio crew. And if you would like to uh, uh, donate on top of that, I again, I thank all of you who have done that. Uh, you can click on one of our friendly yellow Donate buttons, which allows you to donate a, you know, a specific sum. And... Um, and uh, if you would like to do this tr- the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, folks, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And um, <laughs> if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. <laughs>